0: Joyce Heron is such an amazing woman of faith. Her life and her leadership is such an inspiration to our church, to our school, to our community. Uh, happy 90th birthday celebration. Joyce, we love you. Well, we're going to wrap up our mini series that we started a couple weeks ago, Truth Heist. And if you were here with us two weeks ago, we, we talked about uh, family and how family is under attack. We talked about freedom and how freedom is under attack. And we're going to wrap up this series uh, today talking about faith. And the main idea, the main idea, the main takeaway of the message today is about devotion and how I believe devotion is the steel rod of our faith. We're going to look at the life of Daniel and how he had to face down uh, the wiles of the enemy. Uh, He had to face down idolatry, the altering of his identity and immorality in a very immoral culture there in Babylon, and how his devotion to God became the steel rod of his faith. We are living in challenging times, and as Jude, uh, the, uh, the book of Jude, reminds us, we have to contend for the faith. We have to fight for the faith. We have to fight the good fight of faith, as the Apostle Paul said. I want to give you a quote from St. Gregory of the 11th century, and here's what this great saint of old said. I cry, I cry, I cry again. The religion of Christ, the true faith, has fallen so low that it is an object of scorn, not only to the devil, but to Jews and Muslims and pagans. These keep their law as they believe it, but we, intoxicated with the love of the world, have deserted our law. Wow, that was said in the 11th century. Imagine what he would say today if he were still alive. I'm going to read from the book of Daniel, chapter 1. So out of love, respect uh, for the reading of God's word, please stand to your feet. Daniel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Then the king instructed Azthanez, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. And three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Let us pray God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this incredible time of worship, the breaking of the spiritual bread and drinking of the spiritual cup from heaven, representing our Lord and Savior. Thank you now for the uh, breaking of the spiritual bread of life, the distribution of the word. Thank you that, Lord, this Thanksgiving week, as we lead up to Thanksgiving, we have so much to be grateful for. Thank you for your many blessings in our lives and over our lives. We acknowledge them today by setting aside this time to honor you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Daniel was a descendant of the royal tribe of, of Judah. Uh, of the family of David. And he was taken captive. He was basically kidnapped, uh, abducted to live in Babylon. And and as a youth, he and several of his friends. And the Bible refers to Daniel as one of the godliest men in all of Scripture. Matter of fact, he would be on the Mount Rushmore, uh, God's Mount Rushmore of godly men. Uh, Ezekiel, the prophet, God through the Ezekiel prophet said it this way in Ezekiel 14, 14. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, Noah, Daniel and Job. Were in it they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness says the Lord God. So these were the these were like righteous righteous guys. Noah, Daniel and Job. So Daniel was one of them. And to me Daniel had this uh, incredible devotion to God. And it was his devotion to God that was the steel rod of his faith, allowing him to withstand the onslaught that that challenged his faith as he was abducted and taken to Babylon. I'm going to have several quotes uh, in the message today. Uh, once again, Soren Gierkegaard, the Danish theologian, he said this, Verily, there is that which is more contrary to Christianity and to the very nature of Christianity than any heresy and schism, more contrary than all heresies and all schisms combined, and that is to play Christianity. I hope today in these troubled, perilous times we find ourselves living in, I hope that none of us in here are playing with God. I hope none of us in here are plain at Christianity. I pray that all of us, different levels of growth and maturity, of course, but all of us are sincerely, truly devoted to Jesus Christ. And what does it mean to be devoted? What is devotion? It's love, it's loyalty, enthusiasm for a person, an activity, or a cause. It's being it's you know we have so many people as Pastor Mickey was sharing during the offering that are devoted to cotton. This is the like the largest cotton patch you know uh, per acre per capita in the world uh, here in Lubbock. And uh, I've been reading those beautiful cards that you all filled out for the 20th anniversary, and I came across one of those cards as I was reading them from one of our members who's a cotton farmer. Happens to be uh, Pastor Mickey's uh, uh, his his wife's uh, his father-in-law, and. He said, uh, he ended his nice comments, and he said, uh, to God, family, faith, and cotton. (laughs) I thought, that's a person that's devoted, right? That's passionate about cotton. Pastor Mickey didn't say it in this service, but in the classic service, he said, and that's why even though I don't sit in the stripper, I, I, I can still give God thanks for cotton. And I thought, you know, words have meaning in different contexts. And I'm from New Mexico, and that word has a different, entirely different meaning than than that than it does here. And so I thought, do I need to pray for Pastor Mickey now? So he cleaned it up for this service, but I was going to use it anyway. I was going to use it anyway. <laughs> devotion. So if there if there was a devotion meter for your faith, what would it be reading? Hopefully, it wouldn't be two or three today. If it is, well, after today, I pray it goes up to five or six. But I hope all of us in our devotion meter, devotion to Jesus, devotion to Christ. I hope for all of us it's pushing, you know, seven, eight, maybe even nine. Once again, Soren Kierkegaard said this. He said, 12 men devoted to Christ recreated the face of the world. Imagine that. 12 men. One backslid, and then they added a 12th man. Okay. Uh, but these 12 apostles of the Lord, they changed the face of the earth. Christi- imagine this. Christianity, after the resurrection of Christ, 300 years later became the first dominant world religion. I don't know if that's good or bad, but in 300 years, the influence of the message of Christ spread around the world because it began with these committed men who were devoted to Christ, and their devotion to Christ was the steel rod of their faith. I believe Revelation 12, describes the early followers of Christ and how they were able to conquer the paganism of the world when it reads, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even to the death. That speaks, friend, of devotion. It's the steel rod of our faith. And when our faith is tested, as it's being tested today, uh, our devotion to Christ will support us and sustain us and help us to overcome the onslaught of the enemy. So Daniel and his three friends in particular, they had to overcome three things, idolatry, the attempt to alter their identity and the corrupt immorality that was a part of the Babylonian kingdom at that time. Let's talk about the first one, idolatry. The Bible has a lot to say about the topic of idolatry. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 14, let's read it out loud together. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is Paul writing to uh, the Corinthian Christians. He's writing to Christians and he's saying, Beloved, flee, run from idolatry. Uh, they lived in a very corrupt culture. Corinth at that time, that, that they, this young church was trying to grow, and they were trying to become more Christ-like, and they had a lot of carnality, uh, a lot of fleshly behavior in that church, and it took a while for them to reach a, the, the proper level of sanctification, because that is a process. Justification happens instantaneously, but our growth and becoming more like, like Christ is something that we're committed to Uh, the rest of our life this side of eternity, and they had to be reminded to stay, to flee from idolatry. The Babylonians were idolatrous people, and yet Daniel and his friends, they remained devoted, true, truly devoted to the one true uh, God who created all things, idolatry. It's the most grievous sin of all the sins in the Bible is the sin of idolatry. matter of fact, in the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments, they deal with the sin of idolatry. Uh, commandment number one, you'll have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you'll make no graven image. Uh, so the first two deal directly with idolatry. And what is idolatry? Idolatry to God is what adultery is to a marriage. It's unfaithfulness to God. That's basically, it would be a Red Raider fan wearing an OSU jersey today. <laughs> Blasphemy. Blasphemy. A Cowboys fan putting on a 49ers jersey, right? That would be idolatry. So, idolatry is not showing complete devotion to God, complete love and commitment to God. It's the central theme of the Old Testament scriptures. They're the Hebrew people, their battle, their battle constantly against idolatry. It actually begins with the very first Hebrew, the very first Jew, Abram, called out of Ur the Chaldees, who became the mighty Abraham. The Bible tells us in Joshua 24-2 that his father Terah was an idol maker, an idol worshiper. Now that we know according to the Bible, that Abraham's father was an idol worshiper, an idol maker. But what is taught in Jewish circles, not according to Scripture but according to tradition, that Abraham, upon leaving his father's house to follow the one true living God, he destroyed all of his father's idols. That's the way to leave home. Hey, Dad, see you later. I'm going to follow God. By the way, I destroyed all your idols. Bye. (laughs) Hope you follow the same God that I am following. So, idolatry is unfaithfulness to God. Israel committed spiritual adultery by, as the Bible says, whoring after other gods, following after other gods. So, what faithfulness is in a marriage, so being faithful to God in our relationship with God is we avoid all forms of idolatry. What's also interesting is the Bible condemns idolatry but not atheism. Isn't that something? God doesn't really spend much time in the Bible talking about atheists. You know why? Because everyone's a believer. Even an atheist believes in nothing, he still believes in something, therefore he has faith, <laughs> and faith is a description of religion. So his religion is not to believe. You see, God understands, and the reason he condemns idolatry and not atheism is because all people worship, all men and women created in God's image and likeness, we're all worshipers of something or someone. Really, uh, the only reference uh, in the Bible for atheists is found in Psalm 14.1. Guess what it says, Psalm 14.1? The fool has said in their heart, there is no God. I didn't say that. I'm not calling you a fool. Take it up with God. But God said, you are a fool if you deny the existence of God. But the Bible does condemn idolatry. and uh, Because man has this propensity to worship something or someone. Paul Tillich, a great theologian, he writes this about the definition of idolatry. It's the elevation of the preliminary concern to ultimacy. Something essentially finite is given infinite significance. And it's the conflict between the finite and the infinite, infinite that leads to the conflict, conflict of ultimate. So, who's the ultimate? Who has preeminence in your life? Who has supreme control and authority and influence in your life? Friend, if it's not God then you are guilty of idolatry. Jesus, riding to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, he wrote to one of them and he rebuked them because they had forsaken their first love. Oh, how easy it is for us as Christians to forsake our first love. To move Jesus out of the first spot, and he is to reserve that, that, that on the, he should be seated on the throne of our heart, And sometimes we allow our faith and our love and our devotion to Christ to fall off the altar of our heart, and we place something or someone else in place of that. That is truly the definition of idolatry. It's the worship of beauty or money or sports or power or freedom or politics or religion. Or get this, there are still people that worship Elvis in America today. Elvis, I googled it to make sure I was right. Yes, there are people that worship Elvis, and they think he's still alive. But anyway. Dostoevsky, uh, in one of his great writings, The Adolescent, he said this, if man man rejects God, he will have to worship an idol. If man rejects God, the only alternative is to worship an idol because man was made to worship. There's a God-shaped void in every human being, and it will be filled with something or someone. So Daniel is now living in Babylon, and yet, even though he's living in Babylon, he's staying true to the one true God because his devotion to God became the steel rod of his faith. As John Calvin said, the French theologian, pastor, and reformer, he said, every one of us, even from his mother's womb, is an expert in inventing idols. Our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts, as human beings, our hearts are like idol factories. And the only way that we'll be able to overcome idolatry is to remain devoted to the one true, all-powerful God. But not only was Daniel challenged in the area of idolatry, but the area of his identity. In Daniel 1, 5, 6, and 7, it says the king assigned them the best food and wine from, the own, from his own kitchen during their three-year training period, planning to make them his counselors when they graduated. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen all from the tribe of Judah. However, their superintendent gave them Babylonian names as followers, as followers, Daniel was called Belshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was called Abednego. You change a name, you could change an identity. When God wanted to change someone's identity in the Bible, he changed his name. He said, You'll no longer be Abram, you'll be called Abraham. You'll no longer be called Jacob, which means deceiver or subplanner. You'll be called Israel, which means prince with God. He even told uh, Cephas, You'll now be called Peter, which means rock. When God wants to change an identity, He changes His name because there's power in a name. And when you name something, you give it power. When you name something, you give it power in your life. And so the Babylonians wanted to change their identity, wanted them to stop identifying with the Hebrew God and to identify with their false god, so they went as far as changing their name and even trying to change their sex. See, in the Old Testament, these men were made eunuchs, they were, they were, their manhood was taken from them, cut from them, and uh, this, is, this was now their lot for the rest of their life. But even though they tried to give them a sex change, even though they tried to change their name, how we know they were true to who they were as image bearers of Almighty God, their devotion in God was the steel rod of their faith that allowed them to endure such humiliation and yet remain true and faithful to God. No matter how far or how deep into sin someone may go, Someone may actually go deep into that transgender lifestyle and uh, try to transition and, and change their gender, which, by the way, you cannot do. It, it, is, a, uh, it is not biologically possible. Uh, there, it is not possible in, uh, under heaven for anyone to change their biology, to change the way their chromosomes, the way God made us male and female. You can change the plumbing. You can change your name. You can change your thinking, but you can't change the way God created you, separated you, made you fearfully and wonderfully in your mother's womb. But even if you did go through all of that and you come to faith in Christ, you may not be able to change what's already been done, but God could change your heart and God can give you back your true identity and God gives you a new name. He calls you a child of God. He calls you a Christian, for they were first called Christian in Antioch. No one is beyond the reach of God's love, God's grace, and God's power. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God to them that believe. And if you will believe, if you will believe there's power in the gospel to change your life from the inside out but all it takes is faith and belief in God and Daniel and his friends had that there are several heart-stopping truths in the Bible one of them is found in Genesis 1:26 when it says this and God said let us make let us make let us make man in our image and in our likeness let us make man in our image And in our likeness, he's speaking of more than one there, our, right? Who's he referring to? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so God created man in his image and his likeness. That's why every human life is worth something of great, great value, immeasurable value. Every human person, we prize each human life because we know in actuality, every human life, every person is an image bearer of Almighty God. Think about how we would be horrified if somebody took a, a, a work of art, a masterful work of art, a masterpiece. And I Googled, I, I thought, you know, what's the most expensive, most valuable piece of, of artwork, of painting in the world today? Guess what it is? Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. That is like the most revered piece of artwork. Imagine somebody desecrating it. Imagine somebody taking it and just ripping it to shreds. We would be aghast. We would be horrified. And yet, you are God's masterpiece. Look at Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's masterpiece. Say that out loud with me. For we are God's masterpiece. Say it again. For we are God's masterpiece. Look to your neighbor and tell him, you are God's masterpiece. (laughs) You might need a little more work, but you're already God's masterpiece. Amen. And He created us. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He has planned for us long ago. We are God's masterpiece. I'm going to quote several rabbis. Rabbi Herschel, a famous rabbi, he says this, Why was a, why was a single human created? To teach you that from, for him who destroys one man, it is regarded as if he had destroyed all men and that for him who saves one man, it is regarded as if he had saved all men. And he goes on to say, Rabbi Herschel, there is no ordinary man. Every man is an extraordinary man. So every human is created in the image and likeness of God. So then every violation of any human is an offense against God, for God as the Hebrew rabbis taught, for God is the third invisible person. The third invisible person. When you insult another human being, you're actually insulting the image, the image bearer of God, which is indirectly insulting God. Even Jesus, when he confronted Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He said, I, he basically said, I not, I've done nothing to you, Jesus, as much as you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And that's why this gives us motivation to love our neighbor. To, love our, to even love our enemies, because every single human being, no matter the color of their skin or their ethnicity, every single human being is a bearer of the image of God. And that's the, that's the if we're going to clap, let's clap. <laughs> they, all of us are. And imagine what that means, the image and likeness of God. It's the cornerstone and the foundation of, of, of truly loving your neighbor and loving yourself to have self-dignity to have a sense of self-worth and purpose. How much more when you become a Christian, but even before you become a Christian, you may not be a child of God because you have to be saved to be a child of God, but you're a creation of God. You're a creature of God. And the value and the dignity of every human life, that's why God abhors the shedding of innocent blood. That's why God commands, thou shalt not murder. God hates the one that sheds innocent blood. Why? Because it is a direct assault on the image-bearer of God themselves. Now at times, killing is necessary. Self-defense, law enforcement, military. Romans 13, Paul said that they execute God's wrath against evildoers. There are some people that aren't fit to live. That's why the Bible doesn't condemn, condones capital punishment. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, people receive capital punishment, uh, their life for the life that they took, in three areas of crimes committed. Murder, murder, Rape and kidnapping were capital offenses in the Old Testament. For many years in most states in the United States, those were also capital offenses. So there are times that an image bearer of God has to be put down. Peter said it this way. Peter in the New Testament, he said they are brute beasts that need to be caught and destroyed. Some men, some women, primarily men, are so evil and do such evil in the world, uh, the only saving grace and protecting of other image bearers of God is that they are caught and they are destroyed. They are eliminated. And God had to make that uh, adjustment to his plan because of sin and because of the fall of man. But normally, every one of us should value every human life, from the womb to the tomb, because everyone is an image bearer of God. Lord, help remind us of that. Help remind us of that when we get frustrated with coworkers or church members or family members. Help us remind, when we get frustrated with neighbors or help remind us that when we get frustrated with people that believe differently than us or live differently than us. That you and I must see God in others, see the image of God and the likeness of God in others. As a matter of fact, not just men, but men and women. According to Genesis 5, 1 and 2, God makes it clear that both male and female are included under the designation of Adam, from the earth. Adam means from the earth, who were made in God's image and God's likeness. Turn your name and say, Hello, image bearer of God. Go on. Hello, image bearer of God, right? How does that sound? How does that sound? Sounds good. And then in verse 3 of Genesis 5, it says this. It reports that Adam fathered a son in his likeness according to his image. Adam fathered a son in his likeness according to his image. Now my youngest son, Jonathan, was on the video announcements. He's in my likeness and in my image. Why? Because he's my son. He's not me, but yet he's a part of me. You and I were created in the image and likeness of God. A part of God is in each and every one of us. (laughs) Hallelujah. People often ask Mother Teresa, you know, that great inspirational life of Mother Teresa. She loved the poor. and She did so much to honor the dignity of, of all suffering humans, regardless of the cause or the, or the circumstance. How can you love them? And she would always grasp their hand and slowly wi- wiggle one finger at a time. She said, I'll give it to you in five words. You did it to me. Jesus said, as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And so Mer- M- Mother Teresa Mother Teresa saw Christ in the face of those she ministered to. May we see Christ in the face of others that we are ministering to. Image bearers of God and what that means. Now, I must make a theological distinction here. We're not image bearers of God like Christ was the image of God. In Colossians 1.15, it says, He, Jesus, is the image of God. He's the image of the invisible God, which means this. In the Greek translation, he is the exact representation of God the Father because he himself was God, God the Son. Christ was God in human form, and we can't say that about any other human being. You all know the distinction between us being made in the image and likeness of God and Christ being the image of God. Raise your hand if you know. If not, we're going to continue class. Okay. <laughs> okay. But you still are a work of art. You still are a masterpiece. So Daniel had to overcome the idolatry. Daniel had to overcome the altering or the attempt to alter his identity. And finally, Daniel had to overcome the immorality of his day. And Once again, his devotion to God was the steel rod of his faith that caused him and allowed him and his friends to stay true to God, to stay committed, devoted to God. How Imagine how immoral Babylon was. And the Bible says in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8, but Daniel pur- purposed in his heart. Say that with me. But Daniel purposed in his heart. Say it again. But Daniel purposed in his heart. What, what was the purpose? What was the conviction in his heart? May it be in our hearts that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies. And so I love what uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson in his latest book, uh, Adding to the Twelve Rules of of Life, he said there are three types of people in the world, slave, tyrant, and negotiator. Slave, tyrant, and negotiator. You're either one of those three, slave, tyrant, tyrant. Either you're the tyrant that says, do it this way because I said so right? You just dominate everything and everyone. Or you're, and you're, or you're the slave that just does what everybody tells you to do, right? And then in life, there's that unique person. And I always like to tell, I, I've raised my boys saying, you don't get in life what you deserve. You don't get in life what you need. You don't get in life what you want. You get in life what you, say with me, negotiate for, right? So I love how Daniel negotiated with the superintendent. Uh, the superintendent wanted to feed him this, this food offered to idols. And he said, it's against our, our conviction. We can't do that, he said, but listen, Daniel, if you're weaker than the the other trainees, by the end of the 10 days, then it's going to be off with my head. So, I'll, you know, help me out here, bro. And Daniel said, God will take care of us. You just feed us vegetables and watch what God will do. Ten days later... Daniel and his friends were fatter, stronger, and wiser ten times than those of the Babylonians because God honored his conviction. And when you and I stand committed to God against the onslaught of an immoral and corrupt and perverse generation, how many know God honors those that honor him? And God will honor you every single time. What is immorality? If you look it up in the Greek New Testament, it's the Greek word, get this, pornea. Or we get our word pornography. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee pornea. flee sexual immorality, because every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body, and your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul went on to say. Immorality, pornea. Now, what is immorality? We're to flee it as Christians. Now, I'm going to give you the definition, and don't get mad at me, take it up with God. I'm just the mailman, I'm just delivering the package, Okay. Anyway, I'm going to share it whether okay or not. So here we go. Pornia means any sexual activity outside of a biblical marriage relationship between one man and one woman. So the Bible talks about the sin of fornication. That's like a big Bible term, like what is fornication? And people laugh at it today, you know, call you a throwback, outdated, get with the 21st century, blah, blah, blah. Fornication is sex outside of marriage. Then there's adultery. Adultery is extramarital affairs, sex outside of marriage that's separate from your marriage, your spouse. And then there's the sin of homosexuality. Yes, homosexuality is a sin. I know it's celebrated and glorified and advertised and promoted and indoctrinated in all of of, of pop culture today. There's only one definition of marriage, and it will always be this definition of marriage no matter what anybody else says. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh only a man and only a woman spiritually physically can become one flesh in the bonds of holy matrimony and is such a holy sacred covenant marriage is the devil has hated it assaulted it and attacked it as as viciously as anything else that god has created because it is so near and dear to the heart of God. And I want to encourage all of us to be true to God. May our devotion to God be the steel rod of our faith that will allow us to flee all forms of sexual immorality. Once again, not because you have to, but because you want to, because you love God, because you know that He loves you with all of His heart. And you're going to have to stand strong. And that's why I want to encourage those of you, I don't judge you, I don't belittle you, I don't shame you, and I don't condemn you, but if you're living together and you're sleeping together and you're not married yet, let us help you as a church put God first in your life. God's way is always the best way, whether it makes sense or not. God will bless you if you'll honor him. A purposeful heart possesses three traits. Commitment, conviction, and confidence. I love the movie Chariots of Fire, right? When was the last time you saw that? I love uh, the music. I love the true story of Brian Little and how he says, I can't run on the Sabbath. They said, what? This is the Olympics. You're going to forfeit a gold medal? He said, yes, because the race is on Sunday, the Lord's Day, and his conviction may not have been yours. That's between you and God. His conviction was, I can't run on the Lord's Day and he was willing to give up a gold medal. And a friend wrote him that famous note with the scripture from 1 Samuel, God honors those that honor him. Because he wanted to honor God, giving up a gold medal, another race that he had not planned to run, another race opened up, and God still blessed him with a gold medal. Listen, friend if you'll live by your convictions, stand by your convictions. And as Martin Luther said before the Diet of Worms, when they wanted him to recant recant the teaching of Holy Scripture, he says, here I stand, here I shall die. My, My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I can do nothing else. May we live with such resolve. And the onslaught, of idolatry, in the onslaught of your identity trying to be changed to become more like the world, and in the onslaught of of the immorality of our times that we would stay strong and stay true in our convictions to God, that our devotion to Christ in these last days becomes the steel rod of our faith that allows us to to weather the blizzard of immorality in our times. You know, I I looked up and I, I was shocked to find out that in uh in 2016 they they did some research and they found that people in the world spent 4 billion hours 4 billion hours on one website watching pornography the blizzard of immorality of of our time and of our day i thought you know what was the worst snow blizzard that we have ever had in the history of America. I didn't know this, but it's called the Great Blizzard of 1888. And the Great Blizzard of 1888 was the bl- worst blizzard in U.S. history. It dropped 40 to 50 inches of snow and sustained winds of 45 miles per hour and produced snow drifts in excess of 50 feet. And it seems as though we're in a whiteout and a a blizzard of immorality. Imagine being in the blizzard of 1888 and, and, and having a lighter, trying, trying to keep yourself warm with a lighter. It, it's not going to work. And Sometimes it feels like it's a, us against a, a little lighter that we're trying to light against the, the blizzard of immorality. But listen, friend, if you'll remain devoted to God, our devotion to God will become the steel rod of our faith. And we'll be able to, because in life, in life, you have to have a greater yes than a greater no, a greater reason to say yes to God's way, to yes to God's plan, to yes to God's purpose, than to simply say no to what is sin. And that greater yes is our devotion to Christ, which becomes the steel rod of our faith. And I'll close with this story. I'm reminded of a a mental patient that walked up to a new doctor in the state hospital, and he said, we sure like you better than the last guy. And the new attending psychiatrist, he smiled, and he said, well, why? And the mental patient said, because you seem like one of us. That's not a compliment. (laughs) You see, the world has gone crazy, friend. And the world will accept you if you'll be just like them. But because you choose to go against the grain, to go against the flow, To live right side up in an upside down world, the world looks at you, can't figure you out, ridicules you, mocks you, despises you, and rejects you because you're not like them. It's been said, Christians are not required to change the world, but we are required to not let the world change us. There's no place in the Bible where it says, go and change the world. We're to go and be faithful messengers of the gospel. We're to go and preach the gospel in all the nations of the world. We're to make disciples. We're we're to the Great Commission is to is to share Christ with as many as possible. It's not our job to convert them. We're not to Christianize the world. We're to evangelize the world, and there's a world of difference between those two missions. Our assignment is to preach the gospel, and so we're not trying to change the world. We're just hoping the world doesn't change us. There's an old fable of a guy that went into a city back in the 1800s, you know, and and, uh, was just preaching loud and preaching bold and preaching long and warning the people of coming judgment and repent of your sins. And he faithfully went to the town square and did that every day. And people finally came up to him. They said, this is an exercise of futility. Do you think that you're going to change the world by preaching as long and as loud as you do? And he said, no, that's not why I'm doing it. I'm preaching loud and I'm preaching long not to change the world, but to ensure that the world doesn't change me. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we humbly come before you today. We thank you for the truth of your word that you've spoken to us by your spirit. May my words fall on deaf ears, but may your word find a home in our hearts. With every head bowed and every eye closed, simply ask the Lord, Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you speaking to me through the message today? May we have ears to hear and heart to receive the truth that God's deposited within our life and then be doers of that word and not just hearers only. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, or you'd like to rededicate your life to Christ, I'm going to lead you into a prayer. And the rest of the congregation is going to pray this prayer along with you to encourage you. But this prayer will do nothing and mean nothing unless you say it with your own mouth and mean it from your own heart. And so you're saying, well, what am I about to pray? If you are not a Christian, you'd like to surrender your life to Christ, invite Christ to come into your life, become born again, and become a brand new person on the inside. Then you'll pray this prayer and God will change your life. If you've already prayed and committed your life to Christ and you already consider yourself a Christian but you've backslidden and you want to rededicate your life to the Lord, come back into fellowship with the Lord, I'm going to ask you to pray this same prayer as a prayer of rededication. Here we go. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive His love, His grace, and His forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, You're now my Father, and I am Your child. Fill me now with Your Holy Spirit. Give me strength to live for You and serve You all the days of my life, beginning today. For the rest of eternity, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a hand of praise. God bless you, church family.